1: Welcome to New Books in World Music, devoted to discussions with scholars of world music and ethnomusicology. I'm your host, Garrett Field, and today I'm talking with Amanda Weidman from Bryn Mawr College about her new book, Singing the Classical Voicing the Modern The Post Colonial Politics of Music in South India. Singing the Classical Voicing the Modern is primarily about how the term classical music emerged in the colonial encounter to describe South Indian Carnatic music, and also about how the voice in South India came to be imagined as a difference between India and the West. This book is a history of ideas about central facets of South Indian music in the 20th century, how the violin in Carnatic music came to be conceptualized as both modernizer and preserver of authenticity, how ideologies of the South Indian voice were linked to notions of family values and ideal womanhood, How Carnatic music began to be described as a kind of language, and how the notion of a composer having sole authorship emerged in the 20th century. A landmark in the study of South Indian Carnatic music, seeing the classical voicing the modern makes an immense contribution to both ethnomusicology and anthropology of South Asia. Thank you for joining us, Amanda. Well,
2: Thank you for having me, and thank you for that lovely introduction.
1: (laughs) Um, So could you start off by telling us about your background? What brought you to Ethnomusicology and to the study of South Indian music?
2: Yeah, um, well, I actually uh, started out as a uh, kind of late-blooming Western classical violinist. Um, I didn't, although I had some failed piano lessons when I was six or seven, um, I didn't start uh, learning... Western classical violin until I was 9 or 10. And I didn't actually realize how interested I was in it until I was sort of later on in high school. And by then, it was kind of late to consider going to conservatory and all that. Um, And I um, so I ended up going to... College and I, um, I studied anthropology, and but the whole time I was actually um, very interested in practicing my violin, and I was I think I was really looking for some way to combine what was exciting to me, sort of intellectually, about anthropology and about the possibility of things being different elsewhere um, with my interest in music and in playing music, and so it all happened rather accidentally. Um, I didn't know anything about India or South India, um, but in my, I think when I was a junior in college, I happened to hear a Carnatic music concert and I saw that there uh, there was someone on stage playing the violin and I was like, hey, that's my instrument, you know, what are they doing and why are they playing it that way? And I was quite taken with it, um, with the idea of it, I should say, because I I don't think at that point I could really appreciate the music much. But um, I actually, um, and I was an undergraduate at Bryn Mawr College where I now teach, at the time, and I um, so I ended up uh, studying with the person who was the violinist that night Uh, his name is Adrian Larmond and he still lives in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania and um, in fact we still play together sometimes and so I studied with him and he introduced me to um, not only the technique of playing violin in carnatic music, but also to the um, the melodic and especially the rhythmic intricacies of the music, and I kind of started to see that this was something that you could really get into hmm. uh, for a lifetime. And um, so I studied with him for a couple of years, and Um, And then I decided to go to graduate school um, in anthropology. Um, But I was um, actually, I wanted to make, um, pretty pretty soon I realized I wanted to make um, South Indian music the topic of my graduate study, Um, so I was approaching it from an anthropological perspective, Um, and I made my first visit to, uh, I guess it was still Madras then, in 1993. Um, And I have to say, one of the things that actually got me very interested in um, in the music, um, but also in the sort of social history of the music, was um, listening to the stories that my first teacher, um, Adrian Larmond, told me about Madras in the 1960s, mm. um, which is when he was there um, working as a violinist for the, um, the film studios and also learning carnatic violin himself. And so I heard all these stories of musicians doing crazy things mm-hmm. and all this kind of politics and um so i was quite taken with with that and i wanted to go check out what this place was for myself so i made my first trip uh to um, madras in 1993 um and i um made like probably five more trips in the course of the 1990s. Um, first, uh, first couple were to study music there and to get a sense of what I could do, and then um, I realized that I wanted to um, write something about the social history of Carnatic music, um, and so I spent a year in Madurai studying Tamil. And I picked up a couple of other music teachers while I was there. I've had entirely too many teachers,
0: hmm.
2: although it's been good, actually. Um, and then I did the, the bulk of the research for this book was done in 1997 and 98, hmm. um, with um, some kind of some more follow up in the early
1: 2000s so it's you know it's it's easy to take for granted the kind of hard work that goes into uh research and, and writing of a book like this, but y- you draw on an array of of ethnographic experiences and and um and readings of of a of a large and diverse body of 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 local Tamil and english sources Co- so can you can you tell us a little bit about your research
2: yeah um well i was um um i was kind of interested, I guess, you know, in as much as I had a plan, um, I was, of course, interested in learning music myself and um, in trying to use the kind of um, embodied musical knowledge that I was gaining to shape my research questions Um, at least now looking back, I can, I can rationalize it that way. Um, so, but like, so for instance, um, as a violinist, I was obviously, um, you know, interested in the role of the violin in South Indian music. And, um, it was quite striking to me that, you know, there's, this is such a prominent instrument in the musical tradition it's absolutely necessary in every concert um, and yet the music is talked about as you know being vocal music and it is vocal music also um, but I was interested in you know exactly what kind of role this instrument this colonial instrument was playing so so it was really a question like a research question that sprung out of my uh, my own experience as a student of the music. Mm. Um, and so then I started looking um, for various um, ways that I could um, look at, that I could trace the history of the violin in South India. And... Um, So there are, of course, um, there are written sources, um, and a lot of those I happened on in um, libraries in Tanjawa, in the uh, state archives in Madras, um, and various other libraries. Uh, But there's also um, the compositions themselves, uh, especially that i I talk about in the chapter on the violin, mm. um, just looking at at certain kinds of compositions can give you a clue to their history. Um, and so so I was really interested in the uh, the role of the violin as kind of bringing Western influences into Carnatic music. And then, of course, it was so interesting to me that that um, that this colonial instrument could then be seen as a, you know, as a perfectly Indian um, accompaniment to the voice. Yeah. So, um, in terms of um, sources, um, I I spent. You know a good amount of time just kind of trying to find as much as I could anywhere i could um on um you know people just talking about music, especially from the decades of the uh I would say the twenties to the fifties mm. um Sort of critical for um, constructing Carnatic music as a as a high cultural classical art music. Um, so um, it was actually really more retrospectively as I was figuring out what I was going to write in the book that I um, began to see patterns in any of the things that I had gathered Um, but you know I think when you write your first book you're always a little bit less systematic (laughs) I guess Um, but yeah I I was interested also in um, the difference between what I could find written in Tamil versus what I would find written in English Um, and so I think where um, where most of the the Tamil language sources come out are probably in the chapter on um, music and language and the the politics of the Tamil music movement Um, but I I thought it was important to um, to use Tamil sources um, uh, because there's, I mean, there's a lot written on Carnatic music in English, and it it would have been possible actually to limit oneself to English language sources, um, but I didn't want to do that.
1: Yeah, the depth of um, the, the all the Tamil sources you used um, uh, really, really um, is apparent in in, in the chapters, um, and um, so okay. So um, in in the introduction, you, you make one of your, your main your main points that um, your main arguments that uh, South Indian Carnatic music was uh, constituted in in your words in and by the colonial encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you feel it was important to make this argument
2: um, well I a lot of what I was kind of doing in this book was working against I guess what I see as the sort of major the ways in which the the tradition of Carnatic music is narrated um, as this um this uh sort of pure and um ancient tradition that has resisted foreign influences and um, and i I found that that narrative actually excluded um not only the the possibility that Carnatic music was influenced by you know Western things such as the violin, but also it also excluded the history of you know what what sorts of things had to be um, pushed aside or um, excluded to make this definition of, of what could be considered. Carnatic proper Carnatic classical music. So, for instance, the whole history of, of um, the contributions of um, the uh, Devadasi community um, to Carnatic music, uh, which um, Davish Soneji's book has just wonderfully um, brought this out. Um, it's a terrific...
1: Book. I really, I have to read that. I, I know it, it just came out in, um, I think Chicago, or it's this, it's the new. Uh,
2: yeah, you should definitely do an interview on that one. Yeah, um, but I, I just, I found that the, the way that Carnatic music has been um, narrated um, has excluded lots of things. All right, so uh, part wow. my, my overall project was to. um to show how to, to challenge, you know, some of the the truths that are, um, you know, assumed by that narrative. Um, so, um, so that's where the the idea of Carnatic music as being produced through the colonial encounter comes in. Uh, that that it was. Um I guess what I'm trying to say is that without without the colonial encounter happening um you know we might not have the same sort of setup as we have today in terms of you know classical music traditions and and I think an important point is that I was trying to make is that when saying something like Carnatic music was produced through the colonial encounter um, first of all it's not just that it was a An imposition from the West. Right. Yeah, it was a process of of engagement with certain kinds of concepts and sounds that came from the West, but that were worked on in various ways in South India. Um, But the other point um, that I hope the book makes is that um, it's it's not only talking about discourse about music. Um, So there's, um, one of the things I I was working against in this book was this um, idea that you know, oh well there are um, musicologists and scholars you know, in India who will say all sorts of things about music and so there's a musicological discourse and then there's what the musicians actually do, right? Yes. Yeah. Especially in the North Indian context, I think that that divide, um, has, it has some salience. I, there is definitely you know, a discourse about music and then there is musical practice and they don't always match up. And that's true in South India as well. But um, but when I when I'm making the point that Carnatic music was produced through the colonial encounter, I'm not just saying that the discourse about it was produced right and that yeah and that the music kind of remains the same. I'm I'm trying to at least I was trying to make the point that the whole thing was um, was affected. By this encounter, right, and it's not just a matter of, um, of you know how people wrote about or talked about music, but it's also a matter of how people sang and played music that changed.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, although you you, you write a lot about discourse, I think it is clear that, you, that I mean, through your you write about the. Um, the, the how, how the violin, um, I mean, just the violin itself is you know is making music, and then you, but you also I think and we can talk about this later right about the way that um, you know record sound uh, you know recording technologies uh, influence the music. So um, I think um, you were successful in in, in making that argument. Um, And then in the introduction, you also write about how the voice. This is um, the book is kind of it's kind of like two books in one because another really important theme is about the voice. So how the voice in the twentieth century it comes to um, it comes to stand in for this difference between the India and the West. And um, uh, before we really begin to talk about the the first chapter about the violin, can you tell us uh, what discourses were you you drawing on to talk about the, the voice as a historical object?
2: Um, no good question um, you know i um when I was working on this book um you know at probably as the the kinds of sources that I cite you know in the introduction, I guess there is kind of a sort of semi-literature review on voice yeah. Yeah. as a concept. And um, this, again, is uh, symptomatic of first books, where you feel like you have to get everything <laughs> into the book. But um, I, it was actually in, in the course of figuring out this project and figuring out this book that I became interested in the issue of voice, um, more generally and um, there there really weren't a lot of things at the time that I could draw on uh, that didn't kind of take voice as this sort of universally significant pre-cultural thing hmm. um, so the um, all the Psychoanalytic and deconstructive um, writing about the voice um, can be very valuable, but it it doesn't really give you any purchase on um, thinking about sound and about the particular ways that um, the reasons that you know people. Sing and perform certain ways, right, or how that came to be so yes. so i I really didn't have any models of of stuff that talked you know that treated the voice as a historical or a historicizable thing um, when I was writing this book um, uh, and I guess i I was trying to my way towards that Um, uh, so I think possibly the project that I'm doing now which I guess we'll talk about later might actually um, fulfill that uh, that um, a little bit more than this book does but but I what I what I think the book really Although I'm trying to feel my way towards you know the voice as a historical object, um, I think the book actually uh, touches more on, um, in some ways, on the figure of the voice uh, as as something that comes to stand for authenticity and Indianness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and. So, you know, unfortunately, I'm not a vocalist. So perhaps if I was, I would have had more to say about singing practices themselves. That's something that I wish, you know, could have been in the book more. Hmm. Um, um, Because I think that would have helped some of the arguments that I'm trying to make about the the sort of emergence of the voice as a figure for talking about authenticity and indianness. Wow!
1: Uh, so it sounds it sounds like you're you're really trying to um, to even go farther and um, to look to like sound itself or to vocal practice um but let's we can talk about uh, let's talk about the voice in a, in a little bit but I, I um so let's let's go let's go into the first chapter so you focus on on the violin in Carnatic music and you you um one of the very compelling things you say is that you talk about how um, violin um, became both a sign of the modern and a preserver of authenticity so, um, can you tell us about, uh, more about how the violin came to play this dual role?
2: Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, this, yeah, it's it's quite um, sort of a contradiction, seemingly, there, right? Between something that can be sort of a sign of the, the modernity of the music, but also something that can um, preserve... You know what is authentic about it, yeah. yeah. Um, and I actually still find that it's contradictory, and it's a fascinating sort of formulation. Yeah, um, it's a it's a fascinating formulation um, because it's like this, um, you know, if if we use this instrument to, like, sort of represent the music and to play the music, then um, it, like, a lot of the, you know, what I found, the people writing and talking about the violin, they said, oh, it makes the music sound better. Um, and you can sort of understand the music better from the violin it was like the idea that it it makes somehow it makes the voice even clearer Um, and so yeah I I found that to be a very interesting way of, of talking about the music and I think one of the things that that chapter kind of led me to think about was the way that um, musical instruments signify, and that they um, that you know you could probably do this with any instrument but just to to look at the the history of how people talk about it, right? The discourse about this instrument and what it's what it's thought to be doing in the music.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and the violin. I mean, you're you're totally right to point out like this very contradictory um, way in which it is imagined. Um, and I think also the. I mean, a part of that contradiction comes out again in the practice of accompaniment in South Indian music, which you know a lot about. Um, yeah. The idea that you're, um, you know, you're you're following the solo line, right, and it, um, and you're sort of emphasizing certain things about it, um, but you are not the soloist.
0: Right. yeah
2: yeah um, but you have uh, you have like this incredible power in the in the performance context, right You have a lot of power to shape how the soloist is heard. Um, and so that's that's another aspect of the I guess the way that the violin has been imagined. That it's um, it's it has this power to um, to shape how Carnatic music is heard, but it's not necessarily seen as a a Western imposition. Yeah. Um, I just I find it fascinating. I still find it fascinating.
1: Yeah, and that's that the, was that was also a, a very um. um an um, interesting link that you made between um, anthropologies of anthropology of voice and violin performance how the violin is kind of um, like you say it's um, it's kind of rigging the making the voice even more alive and um, I in, in, yeah you, know, you write a lot about um, you know how Chagaraja the the famous composer you know responded to hearing the the voice the, the violin and um, so okay so okay so the first chapter is all about the violin how it's um exploring how it signifies and uh, the role that it came to play in Carnatic music and then we move into a the second chapter which is about the way in which a a new type of concert culture um it came into being for carnatic music so so um what were these these new features and their impacts on carnatic- co- concert culture
2: um well um Part of the, the newness of things had to do with the move of musicians um, to Madras City, um, and so part of this chapter is just narrating that shift. Um, so, in in the nineteenth, to p- paint things kind of broadly, in the nineteenth century. The centers of musical culture in South India were um, the um, princely states of Mysore, Tanjore, um, and smaller ones like Ramnadpuram. And um, and uh, in the late nineteenth century, these uh, basically were um, pretty much beginning to be dismantled, and um, a lot of musicians moved uh, from these smaller cities to the city of Madras, which presented certain opportunities, Um, and um, so there was a new kind of... um, Concert culture developing in Madras. Um, there was the development of sabas, um, which were associations uh, that um, that would uh, put on concerts. Uh, they would organize concerts and hire musicians to come and perform, and they would charge uh, money for tickets for the audience um, and that's how they would support themselves so there was a new structure um, that came into being um, and along with that there were also um, new kinds of institutions for learning music that were springing up so the, um, the founding of um, music departments at, and colleges of music uh, were also part of this um, but I think the the part of it that was most interesting to me was the actual staging of the music um, and the new concert format that came about mm. um, and exactly you know what thinking about what were the effects of that Format, um, and so so there is a particular format which you know real, very well <laughs> uh, <laughs> for Carnatic music concerts. Um, you know where there'll be um, there'll be an introductory piece, and then there's uh, you know probably eight or nine compositions in the course of two hours, and one of them is taken as the main composition, and then there are, and is is elaborated on in improvisation more than the others, and then um, sort of assumed in this format is that there are certain ragas that are, like, heavy or serious ragas, and there are other ones that are light um, or not so serious, and so the second part of the concert after the main item usually is, you know, devoted to songs that are lighter or less serious in nature. Um, Right. And, you know, and then culminating in the, um, what do they call it, tukara, right? Yeah, yeah. Miscellaneous, right? So the miscellaneous little short pieces that are included at the end kind of as fun things before the concert's over. I actually found, I've always found the tukara section of the concert to be really interesting. Um, And one of the things I wished I had done um, while I was really doing my research on this was, was I wished that I had actually more systematically taken notes on or even recorded what was... Being performed as tukada, um, because I think that's it's an interesting place in the concert where you know you can have um, javalis, which are compositions I you know um, associated with the devadasi or courtesan repertoire. Um, you can have Hindustani-like pieces, you know, sort of foreign things. You can have the English note. Um, which were, you know pieces that were um, basically inspired by um, Scottish and Irish jigs that uh, people heard um, during the colonial period. Um, you could have film songs as part of the tukara So mm-hmm. it's like a place where everything that's excluded as non-classical, Right, it's sort of penned in in the tukara part. Yeah, right. And, you know, there's this sort of gradation of what is considered to be really serious, um, you know, improvisation-worthy, heavy ragas and what is considered to be lighter. And I, you know, like, I always had trouble just on my own. Like, I could never tell just as in my own experience as a student of music you know I would like learn some raga and I would say oh this is a great raga this must be like considered really serious and heavy because I find lots of ways to improvise in this one and you know and then my teacher would be like oh no this is just a just a light <laughs> no one improvises in this so so I, I got kind of interested in how how these sort of value distinctions came about um, and um, you know one thing that's actually quite interesting is that um, there is there's a group of compositions uh, which again I'm sure you know about, um, but, um, called the Pancharatna Kritis, right, so the five gems of Thiyagraja, this composer, and um, these are all composed in ragas that um, now you don't really hear people um, elaborating and improvising in these ragas that much anymore, And,
1: um, yeah, right, that's really interesting. You, I I forget that, but you you do write about how it became more, how the, the music became more composition oriented.
2: Yeah, well, these, these compositions, like the way I've heard them performed, like they're always just performed as the composition itself, like there's not, not even any. Um, alapana, like, you know, improvised elaboration of the raga before launching into the piece. They just perform them as compositions. Yeah. yeah. And there's no improvisation afterwards either. Um, and um, And I actually asked people about this, and my teacher said that her father... Uh, who was, you know, like a violinist active in the 30s, 40s, 50s, um, that he would improvise on these pieces, and he would take them as the main item in his concert. And wow. So, so there's, obviously there have been shifts in in what people consider to be, like, just at the level of, like, the music itself here, right? Like yeah. There there have been these shifts in what people consider to be um, heavy, serious, you know, the real stuff of carnatic music. and um, So I didn't really sort of systematically do that in the book, but it's one of the things that I was gesturing towards i guess
1: and that leads us to the to the next chapter because in addition to you know ragas and types of improvisation being heavy or serious there there was also this um gendered component to it and and you write about how you know certain um certain improvisations um came to be considered um it it wasn't proper for 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 women to perform these these masculine forms of um, improvisation and um um, so th- th- this is the third chapter where you, you really, um, but you mostly focus on, on the nexus of voice and, and gender, and um, you, you, you dedicate um, some of the chapter to the life of M.S. Subhalakshmi, and, and also the things that the music community said about her voice. So what, what about M.S. Subalakshmi inspired you to focus attention on gender and voice in South Indian music? Yeah. Okay. Did you, did you hear my question?
2: Yeah, I heard your question. Okay. Um, so I'm answering about Ms. Lakshmi. Yep. Um She's. It's partly that she's so celebrated, um, and that um, at least for a while, I have to say, un- until I wrote until I wrote this chapter and published stuff like uh, about this, um, it seemed to me that there was. This incredible consensus about her as a wonderful musician and a great voice, and um, um, and so so I was interested in you know just in that fact and what um, what role she played in the imagination of Carnatic music in the twentieth century um so i was i was kind of interest less interested in the sort of actual facts of her life than in in what she signified i guess um although the facts of her life are important too um i've actually been learning quite a bit more about her in my current project, um, on film singers, uh, because she sang for films in the 1940s, late thirties
1: and early forties. Um, was that controversial controversial that she was singing? I I had no idea that she sang film music.
2: She did. Um, well, her, that's actually how she became known, um, through through her, um, gramophone recordings of film songs. First, um, and then, um, and 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 actually, uh, so she married. Um, she married um, S Sadasivam, who was um, a Brahmin, and she, of course, came from a Devadasi background. Um, and um, you know, everyone talks about how he Brahminized her, um, <laughs> and so uh, a loaded term. <laughs> Um, but um, so he kind of he kind of managed her career, um, obviously. But he he was um, he he um, oversaw her her acting in these films. So she was a singing actress. This was the period before playback singing. Um, so the actors and actresses themselves sang and she played um, she acted only in four films um, and then she kind of she left the, the world of films to focus on her classical music and, um, but the films actually um, they kind of represented her, her um, almost as herself it's kind of interesting that they were they were also a vehicle for for um, sort of staging her devoted musicianship, huh. um, especially the there's a film from 1945, I think the last film she acted in called Mira, um, which is about the life of this um, saint Mira, who sort of uh, gives up all her worldly uh, affairs and possessions to become a devotee of Krishna, and M S Subbulakshmi plays Mira in this movie, and the movie is just full of, you know, M S Subbulakshmi singing, um, and these sort of close-up shots of her um, enraptured singing, um, and that was also very much the image that. She projected on stage when she sang Carnatic concerts too. That you know, she she presented herself as a devotee um, singing, and um, so so I was interested in you know what she represented in a larger sense, um, and how her her life, um, and you know particularly the. Uh, her transition from a, her origins in the Devadasi community to basically being, you know, the adored singer of the Brahmin establishment in Madras, how that happened and how that kind of mirrors a, a larger shift. Um, so that that is why I spent... Um, uh, a lot of that chapter on on her as a figure. Mm. I actually the, uh, the last time I was in uh, Chennai, I came across a uh, an Amar Chitra Katha. It's a comic series, comic book series in India that you know they do all kinds of mythological and historical comic books for kids. Uh-huh. There's actually one on Ms. Lakshmi. Now.
1: Wow! So she's she's portrayed as like a saint or something.
2: She's um well, it it portrays her girlhood, and you know she grew up with her mother who was a musician who was a diva.
1: The, uh, the connection was lost. Hello. Um, okay, your your text, the audio just kind of faded out. Hello.
2: Yeah, I'm here.
1: Okay. Um. So so she was so so she was, how was she portrayed in that cartoon? She's
2: she's portrayed as um um she's growing up as a girl in Madurai and um her mother is bringing her up and her mother is a musician from the Devadasi community and then. Her mother brings her to Madras and she's um, kind of discovered by um, various people, including the man who would become her husband and um, she um, it, it basically portrays her as running away from her mother hmm. <laughs> and into the kind of into the arms of her husband um, but, like, all the while guided by this, you know, incredible love of music. Um, it's kind of an interesting document.
1: Yeah, I bet. <laughs>
2: Figure out how to... A lot of stuff has come out on MS Civil Action. since I wrote this book, actually. There have been a couple of, like, three or four biographies. Um, and, you know, other stuff like what I just described... Um, she also, she passed away in a uh, good time that I can't remember exactly when she passed away, but um, that was the occasion for a lot of stuff being written about her, too.
1: Yeah, it, um, it reminds me of the, you, you, you spent some time in the second chapter writing about the way that all these um, these biographies of musicians from the, the courts started to appear, and I think the early 20th century, and there's this all this... Um, nostalgia for you know before the madrasa had become like more like a business there was all this nostalgia about the old um, golden days so it's interesting to think what these um, these texts about MS Subalakshmi mean and and so, okay. So after we have this chapter on Ms. Subalakshmi, and also really about gender and the voice, we 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 turn to the Tamil music movement, and um, you you analyze all these um, discourses that that made the Tamil music movement possible, and um, you write about um, U, U, uh, Dyer's that, you you writings, and and you write how the music and language came to be sep- um, imagined as, as in separate realms. Um, I think, in the early 20th century, mm-hmm. and um, this chapter it's just, it's just rich with um, explorations of of ideas by South Indian musicologists and reformers, people like, um, who I hadn't read anything about, like H.P. Krishna Rao, Abraham Panditar, T.K. Chidambaranatha, Mudaliar, and Kalki Krishnamurti, and they all had these ideas about the relationship between music and language, so um, so, w- what was at stake in their ideas? Some thought that music was like a universal language, where others believed that um, it was important to put Tam- the Tamil language on par with Telugu and Sanskrit compositions.
2: Yeah, uh, well, this is, um, you know, a lot of the, um, the debates uh, that I kind of look at in this chapter about um, the need for Tamil music. Uh, they arose in the 1930s and 40s um and this was in the context of um the rise of dravidian politics in tamil nadu and so the um the political parties that um now dominate and have since the you know since the late 1960s um are um uh, coming kind of being um formulated in this period um and uh, one of the one of the aspects of forming this um Tamil Dravidian identity was um that it was supposedly um separate from and um, uninfluenced by, or ideally uninfluenced by Sanskrit and by North India. And so um, how this played out in the world of um, music was that um, the, um, the predominance of Telugu, Compositions, Telugu compositions in the Telugu language um, that, you know, were the bulk of what was sung, you know, on Carnatic music stages. Um, this was um, suddenly seen as something that was not good, um, you know, by particular people. Um, and... You know, and so the demand was, you know, we need to have music in our mother tongue, and, you know, so we need to have Tamil music in Tamil Nadu and let them sing Telugu songs in Andhra Pradesh. And um, so it was like this sort of imagination of, you know, music along linguistic lines. Um, Yeah. And it, it very much reflected the politics of the time, And it was also, I mean, it was also a the the debate about music in Tamil was not confined to classical music in in South India. It was also being conducted in the world of film music. Um, So there were people, you know, talking about how there shouldn't be um, any songs in Telugu when it's a Tamil film and stuff like that. Um, so, um, but the, um, so I I guess what I was trying to look at was, you know, the the kinds of reasons and justifications that were given for these arguments, and also what, what kind of assumptions they rested on, um, and so the idea that, you know, when you you can only really appreciate music that's in your mother tongue um, is, you know, something that could be challenged, right? Yeah. So, um, and there were people arguing on both sides. Both sides, yeah. um, um, For various reasons. And um, what's interesting, I mean, the the Tamil music movement... As it turned out, um, it didn't have, you know, that much of an effect on what was considered to be the canon of Carnatic music. I mean, even now, I mean, all the heavy, serious sort of main pieces are, are Telugu, you know, they're all still by the the so-called trinity of composers who composed either in Telugu or Sanskrit. Right. Um, so it didn't, it didn't have much of, a, of an effect um, in changing what was considered to be canon, um, but it did generate a lot of discourse and a lot of sentiment. Um, and so that's um, I think why I was interested in it. Uh, you know that it it generated all sorts of ideas about Tamilness and um, and certain things that sort of stay like kind of stayed with stayed with us. Like so, the um the very poignant um, moment in Uday Swaminath Iyer's memoir of his childhood. So he was a a little boy uh, in the late 1900s, and he was studying uh, Tamil literature, um, various ancient Tamil literature, and he also wanted to study music, right? And he writes in his memoir um, that um, he He wanted to do both, but his, um, um, he had to, um, he had to choose one because these were becoming constructed as two separate fields, right? You were either a Carnatic classical musician or you were a tamil literature scholar, and the two worlds didn't overlap. Um, and, um, so that, um, and that is sort of true today too, very much true today. Hmm.
1: So, and then in the next chapter you write about, um, a music reformers, um, used notation and conceptualized notation, um, um, it, it kind of had this dual role, kind of like the violin. It was, um, like you say, that it was a possible site of resistance to the encroachment of Western classical music, but others imagine it as a space of of progress. Um, and I would just like to touch on one point that I thought was extraordinarily interesting, which is um, your discussion of mudras. So mudras are these, these um, we, people often call them composer signatures. And in, in, in you write about the way that um, how... How the, the mudra kind of a, epitomizes a, a different set of values about um, authorship, so can you talk a little bit about that, and, and really anything about um, um, about what you felt to be um, fascinating about all these different ideas about notation that um, were coming into being in the 20th century in South India?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, the the issue of the mudra is quite interesting, because um, it, it brings out this contrast between a sort of modern notion of authorship, um, where you sign your name to something and that means that you are the creator of it and you, you know, it's your intellectual property. And and, um, people have to cite you. Um, But the mudra was actually something different Um, as far as I can tell. It was, um, in many cases, it was um, a name that a uh, a composer would use, uh, well in some cases it was the name that, that the composer would use to refer to themselves, but they were always referring to themselves as um, as the devotee of somebody, right? So, yeah. so signs his name. He says tiagaraja in the the charnam of all his kirtanas, but um, it's to say that he's, you know, forever the devotee of Rama or whoever, right? Um, yeah. And then in some other cases, the mudra is actually the name of a temple deity. Um, that somebody is composing the piece or singing the piece in honor of, right? So it's not actually the composer or the singer's name at all. Hmm. Um, And so there, um, there, you know, then you get the possibility of people using a particular mudra um, to, um, you know, possibly to make sure that their piece is heard or passed on um, but they're not um, necessarily doing that by claiming their own authorship of the piece um, so so all of these I guess the, the Mubha would be interesting to further explore as a um, you know as in terms of strategies for, um, for getting your, your piece passed on, because you have to remember this is all hmm. typically happening in an oral transmission context. Um, and that, that sort of comes into conflict with modern ideas of authorship and um, the composer, right? Which, these become important once you start publishing stuff in printed form, and you need to attribute the song to a composer.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, um, let's see, we're almost running out of time, but I, I, I want to ask you about the last chapter. Um, it's it's about how technologies of sound production um, with gramophone and radio it brought about these new practices of listening and performing so um, so can you tell us a little bit about that how, how what this impact was on listening and performing South Indian music
2: yeah um, you know this is um, something I think needs a lot more exploration. Um, but hmm. i mean, just as a small example um i think that you know the the possibility of listening to yourself um or listening to somebody else um over and over again especially when it's a when it's an improvisation um you know in the context of music that is improvise it really changes the um, it changes your relationship to the process of improvisation and um, this is um, not something that I particularly focused on in that chapter um, but I guess it's something that the chapter um, you know, writing it made me think about more, you know, which is um, you know, what what the possibilities for musicians are now when we have like this incredible wealth of recorded stuff that we can go to and listen to like 50 versions of somebody um, you know, improvising in yeah, yeah. the Raga Kalyani and um, we can compare the versions and we can listen to them at half speed and uh, and study them and memorize them and um, that must have a huge effect on the process of improvising. Uh, and it's not something that I actually wrote about in the book, but um, I'm sure I think other people have written about this in the context of jazz
0: improvisation.
2: Hmm. Um, but it is—it's something that you know deserves more exploration.
1: Yeah, and you—you you also write about the way that um, even. Um, also just the, the printing of large manuals of music also uh, changed people's ideas about um, repertoires um, you know whereas musicians may have had a repertoire of I don't know 20 or 30 pieces then um, their, the idea that they could be you know they, they could have just this mass um, repertoire kind of was influenced at least by the printing of these uh, large manuals and um, well we're, we're we're almost running out of time, and it's been really terrific, terrific talking with you, Amanda. And my final question is: What's next? Uh, do you have any projects that you're currently working on?
2: Um, yes, I am. Um, I've actually been working on a project on um, playback singers in the Tamil film industry. Uh, I've been working on this project for a few years now, and um, I'm focusing on female singers um and i'm so playback singers are the the singers who record their voices in the studio and then they're called playback singers because they're recorded voices are then played back on the set and the actors and actresses who are doing this the you know dancing around in the song and dance scenes in the films um, they lip sync to the pre-recorded playback singer's voice mm-hmm. um, if it's a lip sync song, or they they act according to it, whatever. So, um, so it's it's a project about film music, uh, but particularly about the changes that the female voice has gone through since since the beginning of playback singing, which kind of began in the late 40s as a profession um, to the present. Um, And so there have been lots of changes in the ways that female singers are expected to sound, and also how they're expected to project themselves and be in public, how they dress, how how they perform on stage so i'm I'm looking at these changes in the context of um basically the you know the post independence era the fifties and sixties to the present mm. and um kind of trying to give an an oral um you know, sound, you know voice and sound oriented history of you know these larger societal changes in India that have to do with independence and nation building and then post-economic liberalization.
1: It sounds fascinating. Um, I would like to thank our listeners for joining us today, and I want to thank Amanda Weidman for talking to us about her fascinating new book, Singing the Classical, Voicing the Modern, the Post-Colonial Politics of Music in South India.
2: Well, thank you for uh, for the interview.
1: You have been listening to new books and world music. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.